Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we long for your presence in this place. We long to commune with you, to hear your voice, and to respond. But Lord, we, we admit that without your spirit coming and, and quickening our spirits, we, we are, we're kind of dead to you, Lord. We need your empowerment even to understand your word. We need your illumination to, so that you would open the scriptures to us and that our minds would be clear of all the things that come in and cloud our minds. So Lord, we pray at this time that you would open our minds and our hearts and our spirits to the voice of your spirit. And so Lord, we, we say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me as I speak your word. May it, may it be truthful, may it be powerful, may it be like a sword cutting into our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would oversee this time and that we would commune with you and that your presence would be felt here. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're picking up uh, where we left off four weeks ago in the book of Ephesians. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to the end of the chapter is what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to look at a couple verses in, verse, in chapter 4 as well. Uh, so you can open your Bibles, if you brought a Bible, to Ephesians chapter 2. You'll be looking at that. I remember when I was a, a kid back in the mid-60s, uh, I know it's a long time ago, but uh, we used to pile into the back of my, my parents' Strato Chief station wagon, and we would head out uh, cross-country from uh, St. Catharines out to uh, um, uh, Chatham. And we would drive up to Chatham, and I would always bound out of the car and go and give my grandparents a big hug. Because uh, they had a, a dairy farm out there in Chatham, had about 100 acres, it was beautiful, it was always an exciting time, I loved going to my grandparents' place, and my grandfather is the kindest, sweetest guy you ever met, uh, didn't say a lot, but he, he just, you just felt like he would love everybody, and, and even the way he treated his cows, like he knew them all by name, and, you know, it was amazing, he had 60 cows, all had a name, and, and uh, he was just a super great guy, but you know, I want to tell you a little story about him. When he first immigrated to Canada, he actually immigrated about an hour from here in Van Cleek Hill. And uh, he, he came to this place where, where he was sponsored by some Canadians who, who had a big farmhouse, huge farmhouse. And he, he was given this beautiful suite in the, in the farmhouse for him and his four uh, girls that he had, my, my mom and her three sisters. And uh, they moved in there. But when he moved in, he felt tricked because when he moved in, he found out the ethnicity of the owner of the farm and he instantly hated the man, instantly. And you might be going to, thinking to yourself, well, I thought you said your grandfather was a very kind and nice man. How could he hate someone just because of their ethnicity? Well, he did. And he hated it so much because he was actually supposed to work for this guy and he just couldn't stand working for this guy because of his ethnicity. And finally, within a few months, he picked up his four children and his wife, and he moved to St. Catharines, and he actually moved into a renovated chicken coop because he felt that that was better than hanging out with this man of this ethnicity that he couldn't stand. And uh, sometimes we're quick to judge people like that and think like, what an intolerant, ingrateful person. 
my grandfather was. We have to realize that my grandfather grew up through some terrible years, and he had just moved from Holland. And in Holland, he had experienced being shot at by Germans. And he, had, he tells the story, my mom tells the story, he doesn't talk about it. My mom tells the story of him hiding behind a lamppost, a concrete lamppost, after curfew, and a German spotting him and using his automatic machine gun fire to shoot at my grandfather. Well, my da- grandfather is scared spitless behind this lamppost, pieces of concrete flying off in every direction, and he thinks he's going to die within seconds. My grandfather was... I, I learned this just recently, actually, just in the last year. I learned that he was actually part of the resistance in Holland. And uh, my mom would wonder who these people were that were staying at her house. They were Jews um, that my grandparents were hiding in their home. And so when they got to Canada and moved into this farm, my grandfather was very shocked to find the owner of the farm was German and instantly had the trouble. Can hatred, can despising ever end? Can it ever be resolved when you feel a people group have destroyed your people group, where your country has been ruined by some other ethnic group? Can that ever go away? You know, maybe you've read The Hiding Place, awesome book, saw the movie, read the book. Uh, It's a little bit like my grandparents, maybe a little more intense, I think, because my grandparents were never hauled off to a concentration camp like Corey Ten Boon and his sister were. And Corey Ten Boon talks about this terrible time in her life where uh, the Nazi, Nazi Germany had taken over Holland and and where they were hiding Jews behind a, a wall in their, their apartment and uh, talking in code and all this stuff. But the Germans came one day and took her family off to prison. And uh, they were in that internment camp for a long time. And her sister died there in that camp. And her father died there in that consecra- concentration camp. And Corey Tim Boone had to deal with all this anger and frustration. And, and she put it all at the feet of Christ. And she became an internationally renowned speaker who spoke on forgiveness of Jesus Christ to wash away sins and, and that we can be brought back together. And one day, when she was speaking at a conference, a man came up to her after the conference and said to her something like this, Christ forgives all our sins, right, Fraulein? Corey Timbone froze when she recognized this man. He was an SS master at the prison camp where her sister died from curable causes. This man was responsible for her, the death of her father in some way and the death of her sister. And suddenly all of that preaching, all of that teaching, all that stuff that she'd been saying didn't make sense as this man held out his hand, indicating that he was a believer in Christ. And she couldn't bring her hand up 
to shake this man's hand. Does Christianity break the barriers between people, or does it not? And after what seemed like an eternity of a battle in her mind, it was only seconds, but it felt like an eternity of all those thoughts coming back to Corey Ten Boone, all the horrible things that had been done to her and her family. And she finally raised her hand and said, yes, Christ forgives all, and shook the man's hand. She said it was the hardest thing she ever did in her life, to shake that man's hand, to express forgiveness to him. I can imagine. It's not easy. You see, Jesus came to bring peace between the Germans and the Dutch. Jesus Christ came to give, bring peace between the Irish Catholics and the Irish Protestants. Jesus came to bring peace between the Hutu and the Tutsis. Jesus came to bring peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus came to bring peace to the people of the world through his death on the cross. And that's really what our passage is about this morning. It's about Jesus coming to bring peace between peoples. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. The text today starts with, therefore. Now, I remember the, the professors in Bible college, they were always drilled it into us, you know. If you find the word therefore, that's not the start of your sermon. <laughs> and here I am starting with that word. This is uh, not good. They always said, you got to know what the therefore is there for. You got to look back because it always refers to something before. And so you have to look back. And so I want to quickly review what has happened in the first two chapters of Ephesians. We talked about it in the, in the month of January and February. And so uh, at the beginning of the book, after his uh, address, uh, Paul kind of runs into this tirade, this, this, this ramble monologue of, um, of raving about all the great things that God has done for Christians, all of our spiritual blessings. And he just kind of, he trips over himself to pour out all these spiritual blessings. And then after that, he's, he starts to pray for the Ephesians and he expresses what he's praying for the Ephesians, how he's praying that the Ephesians would understand all of this stuff that God has given to them. And particularly that they would have wisdom and revelation, that they would understand what God is revealing to them so that all of these blessings wouldn't just be something sort of out there that they sort of understand a little bit of, but that they'd actually understand it personally and that they'd receive these blessings. And then as we get into chapter two, uh, Paul starts talking about the fact that, that we used to be, the Ephesians used to be far from Christ, locked in sin and just a terrible, uh, consequences of those sins that, that they were going to face God's judgment and wrath. But, and then we come to the kind of the pinnacle of the book, which we talked about four weeks ago, and that is that, that for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not through works so that no one could boast. This is, this is sort of the high point of the book of Ephesians. It's just pointing out that we're saved not by the good works that we do, not because we're so great, but why? Because God is gracious. You know what grace is? Grace is unmerited favor. I often explain it this way. Um, 
let's say I, uh, I, I'm at your house and uh, one of you, someone who drives a car at your house parks behind me while I'm at your house and I don't, don't see the car and I back into your car. <laughs> okay? And I'm like, oh my goodness, put a huge dent in it. And uh, I go back inside and I say, oh, I'm really sorry, I just blew it. And you say to me, Pastor, don't worry about it. It's all good. Don't worry a bit. It's an old car. It doesn't really matter. Just don't worry about it. And I'm like, are you, what are you talking about? I just damaged it. I need to pay for it. And you're like, no, 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 not at all. And you just, just let me off the hook. Don't expect me to do that for you, but, you know. <laughs> what would that be? That would be grace, unmerited favor. You would just be so gracious, and I'd be just like, what are you, what are you talking about? And maybe I'd try to pay for it. And you would say, no, no, no. That's what God has done for us. And he says that we receive that grace by faith, by believing that God did that for us, that believing that Jesus died on the cross, we can accept that gift of grace to us. Um, and he says that it, even that gift of faith, that, that believing in Jesus, even that's a gift from God. We couldn't even muster up our own faith. We couldn't even muster up the, the idea that, that we could believe that Jesus is God and that he loved us and died for us. God says that even that is a gift from God. And so it's this awesome thing that we have. Um, <clears throat> You know, it's interesting that Paul says in Romans, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an amazing thing, this grace. Even while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, before you came to know Christ, you were a sinner, yet Christ had already died for you. He had already died for you. <clears throat> but it's interesting when we read this verse. Oh, where are we? Yeah, there we are. <laughs> So when we read this verse, it's for by grace you've been saved, it, and in in that uh, it's not from yourselves as a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's only half of the key passage in First Corinthians. In fact, it's the half that most evangelicals have memorized. How many of you have memorized this passage? Okay, so yeah, it's about half of you, maybe a third have memorized this passage of scripture. But you know what? There's, this is only half the verse, and I think I pointed this out before, that not quite as many people have memorized this next one. What does it say? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What an awesome thing. See, God saves us by grace. But then he's got all these good works lined up. And he's got, you know, he, uh, want, you know for, for me, he's, you know, he's like, well, I want you to be a good husband. And I want you to be a good father. And I want you to be a good pastor. I want you to be a good evangelist. I want you to be a good teacher. Got all this stuff lined up. Yeah, sometimes it's a little overwhelming, actually, all these things that God wants me to do. But this is what God has saved me for. He's saved me so I can be a new creation in Christ Jesus. In fact, the scripture says that we are a new creation. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so we are new in Christ. We're, we're different than we were before. And um, 
You know, on Friday, somebody said to me, you know, I had a dream. And I dreamt that the end, the end of the world was coming. And then my instant thought was, have I done enough? Have I done enough for Christ in this world? Have I, have I shared the gospel enough? And, um, you know, they were concerned that the good work that God had called them to do, maybe they hadn't quite got done. And I think that's, a, that's a, quite a challenge, isn't it? Have you done the good work? The good works that God has, has designed for you to do ahead of time. And he's lined them all up for you to do. Have you done those things? Well, it's a big question. <clears throat> for part of the reason that God created us and made us new was to do good works. <clears throat> and it's interesting what Luke says. Jesus says this, For everyone who has been given much much more will be required or demanded. And from the one who has been given entrusted, I'm sorry, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It's interesting. Salvation is a free gift. But then God calls us to do good works, not to earn salvation but to be part of his kingdom, be part of his family. He said, this is part of the reason that I called you into faith was so that you could do good works. And sometimes evangelicals, we bypass this whole section and we miss it. And we don't realize that God has called us to do good works and get involved in his kingdom. And not just to go, hey, I'm saved now. Jesus died for my sins so I can just be a couch potato and enjoy all the goodness of God. That's not the way it works. God saved you from your sins so that you could be one of his workmen and do and join him in this great work of, of uh, building the kingdom of God. That's one of the points why he saved you. You know, God's got a plan. He's designed these things for you to do. And sometimes people say to me, well, pastor, I, I don't know what God wants me to do. And I'm kind of like, uh, it's probably just right in front of you, pretty obvious. You know, I, I usually then quote my life verse. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll do what? He'll direct your path. He'll make a straight path in front of you. He'll organize your life for you. So all you got to do is trust God and acknowledge him. Don't, don't think so highly of yourself that you got going to figure this all out. Give it all to God, and he'll just direct you. And it'll just unfold. Um, and to me, that's what this passage is all about. It's just saying God will direct you. You know, I love what Ecclesiastes says. Whatever your fi hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You know, get into your work. If God's called you to be a, a farmer or a tax collector or whatever he's God, God's called you to do, do it with all your strength. And work for the kingdom with all your strength. Whatever God drops on your lap, do it with all diligence. Love it. You know, it's, it's interesting. In Philippians, Paul, and I might be taking this a little bit out of context, but Paul says the things that you don't understand, God will make it clear to you. So if you don't understand what, what you're supposed to do, God will make it clear to you. I mean... Jesus makes it very clear 
that he describes what being an, a neighbor is like. You remember the story? Jesus told the story of, of a man going from Jerusalem down to, to Jericho. And as he's going along the pathway, some robbers come and attack him and beat him up and leave him half dead laying on the side of the road. And a priest comes along. And the, the priest who's supposed, who, who's supposed to be doing God's work comes along, sees the man half dead on the side of the road and kind of, ooh, huh, looks around for robbers and starts running. And then a Levite, another, another man involved in the temple worship, comes along, sees the same guy lying on the side of the road, and takes a wide berth around the guy and keeps going. Doesn't even check to see if the guy's still alive or anything. And then a Samaritan, someone from another nationality, despised by the Jews, comes along, sees the man, and goes to him and bandages up his wounds, lifts him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the nearest inn, pays for his lodging and pays for his food so that the, this Jewish man could, could uh, survive. And he helps the man. And Jesus says, well, who is the neighbor to the, this man? But I want to ask you a different question. What was the work that the Lord called the priests to do that day? Was it to serve in the temple or something else? What was the work that the Levite was called to do that day, the good work? Was it to set up the communion or whatever they did in, the, in those days, the, the golden lampstand and make sure it was lit and ready? Or was there something else that God had in mind? I don't think I need to answer that question. What about you? What has God called you to do about your grouchy neighbor? What has God called you to do when you turn on your TV and you see pictures of, of uh, little kids in Africa who are starving and world relief comes on? You just change the channel, you know, or not now we click, click the channel to a new channel. I don't want to see that. How do you respond when, when uh, Abdel comes up here and talks about Project Egypt and, or Mark and the poverty that's there? How do you respond to that? Do you respond in good works? How do you respond when, when someone is sick in your neighborhood? When a colleague is frustrated because their spouse is, is leaving them or doing crazy things? How do, you re do you respond with the love of Christ? Do you bring Christ into the picture in these times? These are the good works that God has prepared ahead of time for you to do. He set it all up. And he set it up for the Levite and he set it up for the priest. But they didn't do the work God called them to do that day. They were too busy on some other thing they thought God had called them to do that God hadn't called them to do. And so a lot of times the thing that God calls us to do is simply the thing that's right in front of us. And God is calling us to serve. You know, sometimes um, we as pastors, uh, we go around and we ask people, would you be willing to do this for the church, for Christ? And you know what the most common response we get is? Who knows what it is? I'll pray about it. Exactly. I'll pray about it. And what they're really saying is, if God does an incredible miracle... To show me that I should do this, then I'll do it, but I'll always forget it. That's really what they're saying, I think. I don't know. 
But what I want to challenge you to do is think about it as God calling you to do... I know I'm not God, okay? Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't have a God complex, okay? But just think of it as an opportunity that God is calling you into. And then instead of praying whether God would tell you to do it, ask God to tell you not to do it if he doesn't want you to. Okay? You see the difference there? It's an, in other words, it's... An, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not trying to push you all into doing stuff. I just believe that we miss so many opportunities because we think we're being spiritual by saying, I'll pray about it. But our prayer is actually the opposite of what God wants us to do. God wants us to be obedient and to be willing and to be his servant, first of all. And yes, there is a place for prayer. And don't get me wrong, I want you to go home and pray about it when you're asked. I just want you to have an open mind that says, first and foremost, I'm a servant. And, and well, no, first and foremost, I'm obedient. And secondly, I'm a servant. And sometimes these things go together. And, and, and see what God is calling you to do. And yes, I'm not, I'm not the voice of God in your life, and neither is Debbie or, or Joshua or... or or uh, other leaders here, but opportunities are the voice of God. The opportunities themselves is the voice of God. He's speaking to you. Here's an opportunity. Would you like to serve? And uh, so take it as an opportunity to serve God whenever that happens. Last, this week, a lady came to me and described a very difficult situation that she had heard about. And it was very complicated. And, and she came to me and she said, you know, what am I supposed to do? And I told her what I thought she should do. I said, you know what, you need to address this. You need to go in there and, and be Christ to these folks. And she said, I thought you'd say that. I don't want to. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. I don't, I don't want to do that. And I said, well, but you know it's right, right? And she's like, yeah, yeah. oh, no, I, I'm going to go do it. And then she prayed, and then she went and did it. And she was Christ to those people. And she was honoring them. And she was uh, critiquing them. And she was being Christ's servant in that way. And she did a marvelous job. Of being Christ's servant. And God calls us to do these things that are right in front of us. <clears throat> so anyways, here we are in the middle of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul says, you know, for, it's by grace that you've been saved. And that not of yourself is, or through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God. So that no one could boast about the good works. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so this is the theme of the whole book of Ephesians. Those three verses. Remember on the the first day I was preaching about Ephesians, I talked about the first half of the book being all about the, uh, next slide, I forget. Yeah, wealth in Christ. 
And then the second half of, of, of the book, all about our walk in Christ. Well, these three verses actually sum it up exactly like that. It says our wealth in Christ is that we have been saved by grace, and our walk in Christ is that we're called to do good works. And so we're going to start moving, and in, in sort of this, this verse 10 is sort of a, a precursor of chapters 4, 5, and 6. And it's really saying there are these things that God has called us to do. So... Um, I wasn't planning on preaching on verse 10, but it looks like I ended up preaching on verse 10. Let's start back with verse 11. Let me just read it. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope, without God, in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, who you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who, was ma- who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. He, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. See what's happening here? God is tearing down a wall. Do you remember um, back before 1989? There was this huge wall in the middle of Berlin. Separated communists, uh, uh, the side of Germany from the western side of Germany. Basically, Germany was divided up into various pow- under various powers. And they built this huge wall, dividing the people. It's supposed to be saving the socialist republics of the... Of, uh, of Russia from, you know, the corrupt Western world. But actually, it just served as keeping, keeping people from escaping. Um, you know, 161 people died trying to get across that wall. Uh, thousands did make it across, but they, they didn't actually cross the wall. They, they climbed through houses and jumped out windows and that kind of thing. But in 1989, you remember the pictures of, of the wall coming down and and people, you know, raising their hands, and pe- there's peace coming, and the wall is being torn down, and the people of either side of Berlin can now fellowship with one another. And this is the thing that Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. He tore down the wall that separated people. But first of all, he tore down a curtain in the temple. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. And this symbolized, this this curtain was an incredible curtain because it separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. The Holy of Holies was a place where only one priest, the high priest, would enter once per year on the Day of Atonement. And he would only go in there carrying a bowl of blood. And the point was that he he could only go in there to make a sacrifice of blood. Uh, for the sins of the people, and he only did it once a year. And then there was the holy place. The holy place was only Levites and priests were allowed in the holy place. And then there was the court of the Jews. 
only Jewish people were allowed in the court of the Jews. In fact, they recently have dug up the remains of the temple from, from the, that was destroyed in 70 AD. And they found a plaque that said on it, all non-Jewish people, if you step one step further into the temple, your death will be on your own head. The, the Gentiles were not allowed into the Jewish court that surrounded the temple. It was strictly forbidden. That was for Jews only. And when Jesus ripped that curtain by dying on the cross, when God ripped that curtain open, what he was saying was, we now have access to the very throne of God. All people, all nations, all tribes and kingdoms around the world, we all have access to God. And you know what that makes us? It makes us all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all together in this. And there's no longer a dividing wall. And nation, the, the Jewish people and the, and the uh, uh, Gentiles are no longer separated. Sure, there's all kinds of walls in Jerusalem right now. But in Christ, those walls are torn down. Next slide. Next slide. Next slide. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> The, the one with the, okay, next, next slide, go, go, I don't know where I am in my notes, so, there we go, look at this picture, I love this picture, Jewish lad with a the skull cap on and the Arabic lad, arm in arm, this is the picture of what Christ does, he changes the heart of different nationalities, people who or are raised to hate one another, Jesus Christ tears down that wall. Why? Because we're all made the same in Christ's blood. We all come with sin in our hearts, and we come all together to Christ. You know, uh, Nahia, an Arabic lady, one of her best friends is a Jewish lady, and they love the fact that they're friends across this Arab-Jewish divide. They love it. Because it signifies in their very friendship this act of Christ tearing down the walls between people. Could you imagine coming to the Lord's Supper one day and there'd be a big brick wall built right across here? No one allowed to get to the communion table? That's kind of like what it was like in the Old Testament. There was a wall between people and God. And Jesus Christ broke down that wall so that we could have fellowship with God and we could have it all together. <clears throat> so, you know, here at the International Community of Alliance Churches, we kind of count on this fact that God has made us all one in Christ. You know, sometimes, I remember when we were first trying to organize the International Community of Alliance Churches, and um, sorry to all you Chinese folk, but somebody said to me, somebody said to me, you know, Chinese are very different than Canadians. You know, they have a different culture, they have different, different uh, a way of doing things. It's very different than Canadians. You're asking for a lot of trouble. And I was like, what are you talking about? 
What are you talking about? We have way more in common because we are Christians, we are in Christ, than anything that will divide us. And we count on the fact that just because we're different culturally, we are similar in Christ. And in Christ, there's way more that puts us together than it will ever separate us. And, you know, I, I still remember when, when Daniel Defuella was here and Jack C. was here. Daniel Defuella is the most charismatic, crazy, like, as soon as he walks in the room, all the attention of everybody in the room is on him. It happened all the time. Jack C. is a little meek, mild man. Very quiet. You know, he, he must have followed his mentor, uh, Jonathan. Very, very quiet people. They don't make any sound at all. And I was always amazed that we would have this great fellowship with these incredibly different people from incredibly different uh, ethnicities and backgrounds and styles and just personality differences. And we would have these great fellowship times together. And we love each other. And I'm telling you, when you come to our pastor's luncheons when we have them on, on uh, the first Tuesday of the month, I think we usually have them. Man, those are good times. And there's no dividing wall there. You can, you can bet on it. We enjoy one another's fellowship. And we enjoy the differences in culture. And we, we celebrate those things. Because in Christ, next slide, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Christ is the great equalizer. <clears throat> you know, I love the Chinese church. I love the Tigrinian church. I love the French church. I love all these, the Spanish church, the, the Filipino church. I love all these groups. Why? Because they're the bride of Christ. You know, if someone says something negative about my bride... Well, you better watch out because I get kind of defensive, okay? And Jesus Christ, I think, is the same way. And when we are part of the family of God, we love the bride of Christ. And all of these groups are the bride of Christ. And, and even churches of different denominations, they're the bride of Christ. Get used to it. God loves them. We are family. You know... And then as we go into this next section in verse 19 to 22, the tone changes. And he's, instead of talking about tearing down the wall, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about building a home. You see, that's what Jesus Christ did. He tore down the dividing wall between Germans and Dutch and between Hutu and Tutsi and, and all these people. Jesus tears down that wall and then he builds a home so those people can fellowship together. There's this little... little uh, um, food place in, I, I, I'm not sure where it is. It's in, it's in Israel. But anyways, uh, it's called the uh, hummus sh uh, shop or something like that. And you know, if you go in there and you sit as a Jew with an Arab, Arab person or as an Arab, you sit with a Jewish person, you get your meal half price. <laughs> I love it. The owners of this place have the right idea. They're like, wow, that's right on. That's really cool. Hummus house. 
if you go to Israel, you better go there. But, you know, grab, grab some Jewish Arab people so you get your meal half price, you know. <laughs> so look what it says in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. It's not that, that uh, God has rejected the Jews or accepted the Gentiles. God has made a new person a new group called God's children. And it includes all those people. And that's who we are. We are family, plain and simple. Family sticks up for each other. Family works with each other. And look what it says, built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets with, Jesus, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become... Uh, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in, the, in which God lives by his spirit. Well, you know I got to love this passage, right? I'm a builder. <laughs> I love building. And this, this speaks my language. Um, Paul's using this building metaphor. And I love building metaphors. Here, here check this, this picture out. I showed this picture to my wife on Wednesday. I said, do you recognize this thing? And she goes, huh, isn't that the house you built? And I'm like, yeah, it is. I looked on Google and found this place in Regina. And I, I, I couldn't remember any of the street names. And you got to realize how small Regina is. I actually found this place. And, uh, but, you know, this, this house was, was kind of scary to build it. I had never built a house before. And this thing is 3,000 square foot, triple garage. This thing was huge. It doesn't look that big in the picture, but it was pretty big. And I've never built out, you know, I still don't understand. They, they never asked for a resume. They never asked if I had ever built a house before. They just gave me the contract, you know. And so I went about building this place. And, you know, when I first got there, the foundation was already built. It was already there. So I'm glad to see it's still standing. But it's not really, not really because I nailed it together. It's because there's a foundation that somebody put before I got there. You know, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. We don't have to relay that. The Bible, we already have the Bible. We already have Jesus Christ. When I first became a senior pastor here, scared out of my mind. I'd never led a church before. It was the same problem as I had building a house. Never done it before. I'm like, ah, what do I do? But I realized that the foundation had already been laid. All I needed to do was build on that. And it wasn't me building. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, I, when I first took on the senior pastor role, I was scared. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't know, but God looked after it. <clears throat> <clears throat> Jesus, you know, you know what I did when I built this house? I just followed the plan. Whatever the plan said, that's what I did. And I just built it. I made a couple of mistakes, and, and the building inspector come along and wrapped my knuckles a few times and, and did over. And, 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 and the builder, the, the, the people who hired me to build it, they said, well, if, if you want to uh, 
see how it's done. We're building another one just like it. It's a little bit ahead of you. So, so every once in a while, I'd go down the street, drive into this other place after work, and check out, how did they do that? And I'd look at it, oh, that's how they did it. Okay, and I'd go back and build this thing. And you know what? God calls us to do the same thing. Jesus has a plan for his church. And he calls us to love one another and to, to get joined together. Look, look what the, the verse says. With Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. But this whole thing is in him being built. It's a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built. Jesus is the nails, the glue that holds the whole thing together. He is the one that's building it. And we are all part of it and being built together in him. And look at the next slide. It's joined together. You're being built together. You know, you know what? You can't be joined together with the other believers if you don't have fellowship with them. And one of the things I've noticed in the, in the last 10 years is that the church is changing. When I first came here, there was Sunday morning worship, there was Sunday evening worship, there was Wednesday prayer meeting and Bible study, and people went to all of those things. And now people come to church once for an hour and a half, and then that's all they see each other. And they don't even come once a week. We, we look at the numbers. The church has grown dramatically, but the attendance has not. Because why? People only come once or twice a month. And, you know, the Bible says, don't forsake the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Why? So we can encourage one another and build each other up. It's part of the building program that God has for the church is that we get together and be joined together. We can't be joined together if we don't ever see each other. You know, it doesn't work very well. And so God calls us to be together, be unified. And I believe that small groups, Bible studies and, and the ethnic groups and those, all those things, they all help people get together. Alpha course, they help people join together like glue or being put, getting two boards and nailing them together. And you know what? The whole building has to fit together properly or it falls apart. Look at this next slide. This, I, I got this. This is in Toronto last week. Last week they had a windstorm in Toronto and they were building this, this house between these other two houses and the wind kind of started swaying the house and it kind of fell over. Look at the next slide. Oh, no. What? Yeah, this one. This is the front view and the back view. Uh, <laughs> it looks pretty bad, eh? <laughs> And I know exactly what they did wrong in this house. I know exactly what they did. You see, a house has to be joined together properly in order to stand up. When you build a house, once you have all the windows in place, all the drywall on, all the, the, the siding nail on tight, it all works together to keep the whole house together. A lot of times we think, well, the framing will keep the house together. The framing without the plywood doesn't hold together at all. It just falls over. The framing, yes, it has, it's where the strength is, but it needs the drywall and the plywood and, and the cross members and all those things. It needs to hold it together to support it. So when you build a house, I think it's the next slide. Yeah. See, see these cross pieces that are on an angle? I used to do this all the time. What you do is when you build a wall, you, you, you stand it up, and then you, draw, you, you put a line right down the length of the wall, and you make it about a quarter inch away from the wall. And then 
you straighten out that wall by putting up these braces. And the braces go every 10 feet or so along the wall to get the wall straight. And see the little cleats on the, on the ground here? These little things? I'm giving you a building lesson. Well, you move this thing forward or backward along that cleat until the wall is straight. And once the wall is straight, you shove a nail in there, and then it's set. And, and then you build the rest of the house. And I remember one day... These, these braces were in the way, and, and we were working on the roof. And I thought, well, what, you know, the walls are straight, and the roof is already on. I'm going to take these out. And I started smacking them out. This is when I was working for somebody. And the guy freaked out. He's like, don't take those out. Well, why not? They're, you know, we already got the roof on. Hey, the house is not together yet. Keep those in. Now, go back a slide. Look, look in this, this house. There's no cross bracing in that house. Somebody thought, oh, these braces are in the way and I'm going to take them all out. And somebody took all those braces out when the house wasn't finished yet. And that's why that house fell over because there's not enough plywood on. Go to the slide that shows the two front and back. See the front and the back? There's these little tiny strips of plywood and it doesn't hold the frame together. And the thing just fell over. I mean, it's obvious that it was going to fall over. It's very clear what they did wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, oi, 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 whoever took that cross bracing out is in big trouble. <laughs> Probably got fired. <laughs> but anyways, <clears throat> we the church, if, once this house is finished... There will be enough drywall and bracing in there, and the whole thing will be joint together and it'll be bricked together. It won't fall over. We need to be joined together, people. Otherwise, we're going to have all these supports and cross bracing and, and frustrating things in the way. But when we're all in a unity, then the church functions property, properly. When we love each other, with all of our hearts, then the church functions properly and it won't get blown over. It won't get knocked over. It won't have any of these problems like this house has um, because it'll be strong. We'll be together. I love what, what's in, what, what we find in, in chapter 4. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and go to an, another passage in Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know, recently we've, we've had some, um, in some of the groups in our church, there's been some discord. There's been people sort of just, you know, frustrated with the leader or frustrated with the way things are going. And I want to remind you very practically from the Scriptures that your take on how things are going isn't the be-all and end-all. <laughs> God calls us to be completely humble. That means respecting other people's opinions and views. And maybe they might not be the perfect leader that you always thought they might be, or they might not be the perfect person that you thought they always should be, and maybe you don't even enjoy being around them. But God calls you to love them humbly, Notice the words here, humble, gentle, patient. How many times have we been impatient with our Christian brothers and sisters? I know I have. I've complained about a few of you, sorry. 
I love y'all, but my wife hears my complaints. <laughs> and she's very good at keeping her mouth shut. So, but God calls us to be humble. You know what Ephesians or Philippians says? Consider other people more important than yourself. And you know, sometimes I have to do that. I have to go, I have to consider that person more important than myself. I have to respect what God calls me to do, not what my own feelings call me to do. And I need to love them. Notice it says, um, bearing with one another in love. Have you ever bared with someone in love? Yeah, that's, that's when your kid's driving you crazy and you just help them anyways. That's bearing with them in love, right? When your spouse is giving you a hard time and not really living up to what you thought was their end of the bargain, <laughs> and you bear with them in love. You know, I love what Romans says. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. You know, there are evil things that happen in the church. We don't overcome them by pounding people into the ground. We overcome them by good, by loving, by correcting, by whatever, but not by beating people up. Philippians 2, I already mentioned, um, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and, and compassion. In other words, if any of the spiritual blessings have fallen upon you, then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. In other words, get along with the other believers. And he says, you know, like, if you got anything from God, then at least get along with the other believers. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but, but each of you to the interests of others. And this, this is the key. In your relationships, this is, we're talking about in the church here. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. What was his mindset? Well, his mindset was, I'm God. <laughs> and I can do anything I want. And what I want to do is come and be the servant of everybody and die for all of my followers and give my life for them and wash their feet. That's what I want to do. Whoa, that is quite the mindset. And we are called to do the same kind of mind. To wash even Judas Iscariot's feet before he betrayed him. That's what Jesus calls us to do in the church. That's how we get joined together, even by loving the person that maybe we feel like loving the least. And God calls us to do that, and, he, and Jesus paved the way, and he showed the way. You know, you've probably heard this story. But a, a man was walking down the street one day, and he saw some guy laying bricks on a wall. And he, he said, hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm laying bricks. And he saw another guy working on the same wall. And he says, well, hey, what are you doing? Uh, well, I'm, I'm building a wall. And finally, he found a third guy working on the wall. He says, well, what are you doing? 
hey, I'm building a cathedral. And see, the mindset is different. And if, if we're just, you know, oh, I'm teaching Sunday school. Oh, I'm running the sound room, you know. I'm mowing the lawn. Or are you building the kingdom of God? What are you doing? What has God called you to do? You know, there's a story um, about during a vacation Bible school, a leader was teaching. She's in the middle of the, the last lesson of the day, and she's teaching it, and a kid comes in late. And the kid only has one arm. One arm is missing on this kid. And she's like, oh, boy, I hope none of the kids, you know, make him feel uncomfortable for just having the one arm. And I hope none of them, you know, pointed out. Or, and she felt like, well, I, I can't very well say anything about it. I mean, the kid's in the class, so I'm not going to warn the kids. So she went on teaching her lesson, and she got more comfortable teaching the lesson. And then she ended the lesson the way... They always ended the lesson. She said, okay, kids, let's put our hands together and say, this is the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors, and there's all the people. Have you seen that before? And as she's doing it, she says, open the door. And all of a sudden, she remembers the kid with one arm. She stops mid-sentence. And little Susie's beside David. And she goes, here, help me. I'll help you make the church together. And they put their hands together and did the thing. And it's a beautiful thing. We make the church together. And I want to point out one last thing in closing. And this is in chapter 3, verse 10. And this is really amazing when you, when you see it. In chapter 3, Paul's talking about the mystery of the kingdom of God. And how it was hid from ages past and this whole joining of Gentile and Jew and, and the whole thing of Jesus dying on the cross. Nobody foresaw it. We just, they just didn't see it. But he says that this mystery is now revealed in the church. And look what he says in verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms. Do you remember Job, the story of Job? Satan's going along, walking back and forth across the earth, and Satan has an audience with God. And Satan ridicules God and Job for being, you know, God blessing Job, and, and, and all of Job's stuff is taken away. And God says to, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He says it, I think, three times. Have you considered my servant Job? You know what God is now saying to the devil and to the powers and authorities and all these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, all the demons? He says, have you considered my church? Have you considered Eastgate? And do the demons tremble like they, and the, does the devil get upset like he did with Job? Or does the devil go, yeah, I've seen that group <laughs> bickering with one another. <laughs> because God's intention is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Through the church. We have this incredible job to do. Our love and care for one another, our our gracious, our building up of the church together and fastening it together and being connected is saying volumes to the forces of heaven, whether they be uh, demons or angels or principalities or power. Do they quake 
when they see the love that you have for your church. Let's pray. Father, we offer our lives as living sacrifices to you. We ask, Lord, that you would build us up into a holy church, a house where God dwells by his power. Lord, may we strengthen one another. May we encourage and build up each other in the most holy faith. Father, we pray. Lord, we, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So, Lord, we pray that you would use us in your kingdom's work. We offer our lives to do good works for you. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, come and lead us in the final song.